Welcome to the Valley Advocate Podcast, featuring interviews that take us deeper into the people and happenings on the local scene. For more podcasts and a closer look at what's going on in the Valley, visit us at valleyadvocate.com. Hi, welcome to the Valley Advocate Podcast. My name is Dave Eisenstatter. I'm the editor of the Valley Advocate. I'm here with Michael Cusack, uh, who is the publisher of uh, Different Leaf, new cannabis publication, and a former uh, advocate big shot. Ha, yeah, um, once an advocate staffer, always an advocate staffer. Yes. Um, so welcome. Thanks, thanks for being. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Um, so I guess this is probably the question you get all the time. Like, it's you know, print is dead. Why are you making a magazine? Yeah, that's heresy. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Well. Yes. Well, yeah. uh, yes. Uh, print is not dead. Print is far from dead. There are still new magazines starting all the time, and there are magazines closing all the time. Um, just because TV shows go off the air does not mean television is dead. Right. Yeah, exactly. And just because movies flop does not mean it's the end of the movie industry. Um, print is changing is a fair way to say it. Um, uh, I think the print industry, uh, in terms of editorial is getting more, more niche, um, which is sort of what different leaf is, uh, an example of, um, uh, and also delivering content that isn't necessarily on the web or is delivering content in a way that doesn't work on the web incredibly well. Um, so, yeah, maybe you could talk a, a bit about your niche, which is, um, you know, it's a cannabis publication and there's states that are legalizing it all the time. And yeah. Massachusetts is, is Illinois now just went. one yeah. of the established ones, it feels yeah. like. We are the first legal state east of the Mississippi. Hmm. Um, you know, this is primarily a West Coast thing um, and has been, you know, with Colorado leading the way, um, followed by a lot of other Western states. Um, I suspect, given the way that New England kind of works now that Massachusetts has done it, some of the other five New England states will follow suit. And it looks like Maine is going to be the next um, on our radar, although it is um, decriminalized and legal in Vermont, but mm -hmm. they just don't have a sale mechanism yet. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, what I was looking at, my, my last magazine, Take, was winding down, and I was looking for what was next and ran into a friend of mine who's a cultivator and we had a long conversation on Main Street about the question that passed and he filled me in on all of the ramifications of the law which includes not only the ability to buy cannabis legally in Massachusetts but also um, the social equity programs to um, uh, to build in access for communities and people who've been dis uh, disproportionately affected by the drug war, um, which I did not know about when I voted for the law, and also s social consumption venues, you know, cafes and restaurants, which I also did not know was in the law. And I try to be a good informed voter, but boy, I felt stupid when I realized <laughs> I just voted for it so that you could buy cannabis uh -huh. legally. And so um, he and I had a long conversation about that, and then uh, um, uh, uh, about five or six hours I was drive later, I was driving home from work and suddenly thought, oh, my gosh, cannabis. I should look to see what media is out there. And there was a gap. Um, there was a gap. In particular, um, a lot of cannabis media, the majority of cannabis media that's on newsstands right now is uh, uh, business magazines aimed at other people in the cannabis business. So if you want to make a million dollars in cannabis, there's plenty of magazines for you to read about that. 
the number of uh, magazines targeting consumers of cannabis is much smaller. And there's some legacy titles. Everybody knows High Times. Yep. Um, and then there are some titles that are aimed particularly at a, a younger demographic. There are magazines like Dope and Mary Jane. Um, and having just turned 50 and feeling like an old Congra man. Congratulations. That was last year's accomplishment. Um, having just turned 50, um, I thought there's got to be a magazine for the older cannabis user. And so, um, but also a magazine that explains what's out there now that it's legal. Because I think most people's experience is buying flour on the traditional market from yep. some person. And if you go into any of our now open legal dispensaries around the state, you'll be confronted with over 200 products. And that's confusing. And that's a lot of information to digest. So I thought there was room for an explainer there. And you've also got some really interesting, like deep dive pieces into some aspects of the cannabis world that probably next to nobody knows about like this uh lost in the dank web an online anarchist cannabis community grapples with the impact of legalization could you talk a little bit about that sure well uh that that was just a, a great story that came from somebody i knew in vermont who was like hey you know my son's kind of involved in this thing mm -hmm. <laughs> he kind of explained three jane which is a combination I think the easy shorthand way of describing it is sort of a late 80s computer bulletin board and a <laughs> multiplayer role, uh, you know, um, a multiplayer role playing game um, that was focused on growing cannabis. Wow. Yeah. So it's like uh, like Minecraft for cannabis? Yes. Or yeah, or? like okay. a late 80s Minecraft for cannabis. Okay. And so people have, you know, people operate under handles, secret identities, sharing growth. What it started was is so a place where people shared growing tips and actually used the computer bulletin board to control their grows mm. um, remotely. And then um, it went through a period where there was a lot of um, underground uh, traditional market dealing. Um, and then that kind of went away. And now this community that still existed after all these years is contending with it becoming legal. Yeah. And they actually have sort of created a legal product that comes out of three Jane called winter mute. Um, and they're developing a product line out of this computer bulletin board Too too delicious a story to pass up. Yeah. But I think it's an example of, I'm I'm not a cannabis person. I've been a cannabis user since college, um, and now that I'm 50, it's less recreational, more medicinal because I take it to sleep. Mm -hmm. But um, I was never really immersed in cannabis culture, and really, when I had this idea and I started to contact people I knew who were involved in the cannabis industry, um, and they started to introduce me to other people. I quickly saw what I thought was a good business idea was really a great editorial gold mine mm. because there are there is a cannabis culture that is made up of a multiplicity of different cultures. And that culture is going to shift and change and expand as new people start to access cannabis through a legal market. And so um, I thought kind of chronicling that social change in a way that sort of explains cannabis culture to people who aren't necessarily part of it would be an interesting editorial tack to take. Do you have any predictions or thoughts on where 
we might wind up in five years or 10 years. I know that, you know, people are concerned about uh, cannabis becoming like big canna, like big tobacco was. Oh, sure. Um, yeah, I mean. And, uh, you know, and, and some of the um, the subculture being taken out of it It's a, if it's a, just a commercially available product for that anybody can, right. can have. Yeah, I, I, I actually was talking to a, a, a cannabis genetics person, and, and he, you know, we were having a conversation in a public place, and he said, you know, at one point— like, I have to be really careful about having this kind of conversation in a public place because I could go to jail if the wrong person overheard me. And, uh, you know, and we were sort of, we sort of, I went to an event where now I used to have an arts and culture identity with my former publication, and now I have this cannabis identity, so everybody is, like, feeling free to disclose their cannabis use to me on a regular <laughs> basis, which is kind of crazy. Um, like, people I've known for 25 years are like, hey, my wife and I were in Denver, and boy, we got a great chocolate bar, and I'm mm -hmm. like, we have never talked about this ever in our yeah. entire relationship, but now we're talking about it. Um, uh, it's... Um, that culture, this culture is, is, is evolving and changing and shifting. And, and I had sort of likened it to like coming out of the closet mm, yeah, in sure. a lot of ways that like when I came out of the closet in 1987, I, you know, everybody gay was cool because you, you know, it was the edgy thing to do was to go out of the closet. And now it's kind of, everybody kind of comes out of the closet, particularly around here and, you know, in not every place, but certainly, mm -hmm. you know, we're fortunate here in the Valley. And so being the gay next door neighbor has no real you know, sizzle to it like it probably did a long time ago. So it, you know, as cultures expand and bring new people in it, they morph and they change. Um, and, and there is, you know, this aspect of cannabis culture is that it was illegal and people's lives were ruined and people went to jail um, all to keep this plant going and to learn about this plant and to experiment with this plant and to grow different strains. And that was all illegal activity. And so with this new industry and with legalization, the concern is that people who came before the legal market, the traditional market, as, as several um, mm. activists have been calling it, uh, that I, I've they're, adopted. They're not, they're not talking, they don't call it the black market or, no. the, gray, or the gray market. Or, no, because or, yeah. no, those are value, those are more value-driven right. kind of statements. Yes. You know, this was a traditional market, and uh, uh, this is how we did it traditionally. And, um, you know, the concern about making sure that those people have access, and particularly um, for communities that have been disproportionately affected impacted by the drug war um you know there is we could do an entire podcast on the the racist history of drug policy in the united states of america and there is you know we are fortunate in massachusetts that an element of the legislation that made cannabis legal has there is a part of that law which is set to right those wrongs and to make sure that people can transition between what is the traditional market into mm -hmm. a new legal market. That is not without its bumps. Um, I think the CCC is working very hard at it from where I sit. I think they acknowledge that it's been difficult to do that. But even just this week, the, fur, the so there's the economic empowerment program uh, that we actually write about in this issue as well and what the difficulties are in people accessing that. And they just issued one of the final... There are many stages to getting a cannabis license in Massachusetts, and um, a final license went to one of these economic empowerment applicants. It's the first one. Mm -hmm. um, 
and there should be many more to follow. And uh, um, there are a lot of activists still in this community who are paying attention to what the state is doing, keeping an eye on it, and keeping the pressure on. And the Cannabis Control Commission here in Massachusetts is welcoming that scrutiny. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, which is um, interesting, right? Which is very, very interesting, and, and that ha di that didn't happen in Colorado. You know, that didn't necessarily happen in other states that have legalized it. So Massachusetts is really a um, re is a is a real trailblazer on this, and so other states are watching this, and now other states are including that in their legislation as well. Hmm. Do you find, you were talking before about how uh, people you knew are coming up to you with their stories. Do you find that there's like a specific question that you get asked um, often, uh, you know, it kind of makes me wonder, you know, you're, you're looking for editorial content for your magazine, sure. kind of looking for story ideas. Like, w what do you find people are most hungry to know about, about cannabis? I think, you know, it's such a it's it's wide open people like there is no kind of one question that people want to talk about um like where are the lines the shortest <laughs> you know or um where are the lines yeah, the shortest? i mean i don't know i mean it's starting to you know now as there's you know 20 approximately 20 places around the state mm -hmm. you know sprinkled around the state um uh but we're in the we're in the we're in the seat of power here in the western part of the state for cannabis for a variety of reasons which we, we can go into but um you know people are people are very curious about what's available you know people are curious about edibles and like how do you take out like you know i think everybody you know a lot of people read maureen dowd's column in the new york times where she went to colorado and ate an entire chocolate bar and like tripped out in her hotel room for 14 hours because she didn't go low and go slow, right. which is yes. the rule with yep. edibles. But um, people are, have questions about edibles. People have questions really just about medical. Like I, I don't, I have trouble sleeping, and I don't want to take sleeping pills. Or um, you know, one of the first conversations I had with a friend, you know, she and her husband are empty nesters. There, they have one child. She's gone to college, and I sat down with this friend of mine, and she was like, "Talk to me about cannabis, and what should I put on my knee?" Because I heard it from golf. You know, mm -hmm. like, really, like, wh what do I put on my knee? Like, what, what's the product out there? Because it's not like going to a pharmacy. You know, uh, it's, it, this is still a federally illegal product. You know, there are no claims to be made, but there is a lot of research that is underway, and there's an awful lot of anecdotal evidence about the benefits of it. But that's what's going to those questions are going to be answered in very different ways over time as we learn more. But, but people are just hungry for information about anything, really. Yeah, and maybe we should say a little bit about the, the Western Mass seat of power. That, I mean, you know, Netta was among the first that opened up, right. and there were lines around the corner, and they made uh, however much they made, and then they sold to the, to the, the big uh, company from Georgia. And, you know, uh, so it's just... Money was made uh, money, right money here in Northampton. Made, right, money was made right here in Northampton. As a friend of mine who works at Netta told me, she says, I think everybody in Connecticut got edibles for Christmas, <laughs> <laughs> judging by the lines. <laughs> but, um, uh, you know, I think one of, the, one of the interesting things for sort of like Massachusetts political watchers is, you know, those of us in the western part of the state know that the gravitational pull to Boston as an economic center in this state is incredibly powerful, reinforced by a state legislature 
that basically ignores used to be 128, but now it's anything outside of 495, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, uh, we have a good delegation now, I will say, <laughs> but, um, um, but, you know, giant corporation moves to Massachusetts, they move to Boston, mm-hmm. you know, initiatives tend to benefit the eastern part of the state. It's something that we have lived with for a very long time. So under the, under the question, you know, cities and towns in Massachusetts could ban the sale and production of cannabis within their borders. It was part of the... And know, many did. And many did. I forget what the exact number is, but I've been looking at a list for a really long time. At a certain point, I called a friend who works in cannabis, and I said to her, do you have the list? Mm. Like, do you have the accurate list? Because all the lists were a little bit different. We were trying to figure out, like, what the most accurate list was. And when she, you know, we were looking at a lot of lists, but she did something very interesting. She got a map of Massachusetts, 351 cities and towns. She colored them in green for go, red for stop. Mm Mm-hmm. Which is a very different way of looking at ban- looking at this information. And what you discover is, so if you start like at the far right, if you start in P-Town. Yep. So like P-Town to the elbow. Yep. Green all the way. Yep. Cape Cod or, or yeah. The, the. Yeah. Elbow to the armpit. Yep. All red. Yes. All banned. Yep. And then South Coast smattering, coupled there. But really where you see all of the bands, the majority of the bands in the state of Massachusetts are a giant red sea, all the suburbs that ring the city of Boston. Yes. So it really isn't until you get to like Route 495 and then west, so Worcester County, Hampton, Hampshire, Franklin, Berkshire, the number of towns that allow cannabis sale and production heavily outweighs. So it's just simply easier for businesses to open out here because there are more friendly local governments. Yeah. Now, is every local government the easiest local government to work with? No. I mean, I think in Northampton, where we are now, it's been fairly easy. Holyoke been fairly easy. Springfield has a completely different right. process. Um, that, you know, I know in Holyoke, basically, anybody can go to the mayor's office and get the first step in getting a license, which is a host community agreement. And they've made it really easy to get that step. But you can see in Springfield, 30 people off, you know, 30 organizations applied for four four host community agreements in the city of Springfield. Very different process. Very long, long, very drawn out. So there's, you know, there's only medical dispensaries open in Springfield right now. Um, And for one of the largest cities in the state to not have a dispensary in it, Seems weird, but that's the local political control around this issue. That local political control also impacts people who are trying to fulfill this social equity mission. It's very hard to get a license in Boston, too. The process has been convoluted. So I'd love to just uh, pivot. We're talking about Western Mass to a little bit of your time at The Advocate. Um, can you so just inform us all, what, you know, when were you here? Whoa, you know, like just seven years ago? Yeah. Seven years ago. I, it's all like everything just gets so blurry at some point. Um, I was here for about four years. Um, uh, uh, and that was the val- that was when it was still a chain. Mm-hmm. So we were still connected to the Hartford Advocate, the New Haven Advocate. Um, and uh, I worked with Janet Reynolds, who's the publisher of the Hartford and the Valley Papers. She and I met at an event. And she offered me a job here as the marketing person for mm-hmm. the Valley Advocate. So as it says on my resume, it was my job to convince people to pick up a free newspaper. 
which was a lot harder than it sounded. <laughs> so, so yeah, I was here for three. I, I did like sponsorships. I created swag, you mm-hmm. know, like, I don't know. I still have Valley Advocate shot glasses and beer glasses and I threw the best of party. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't, it was not a terrible job. It was a lot of long hours because mm-hmm. Janet had a lot of really good ideas and wanted me to do all of them. And so, um, but she's actually an editor on Different Leaf. Yeah. Yeah, well, it's incredible. I mean, do you do you have any like specific memories of uh, of either you know issues that you were really uh, you know proud of or or uh, or you know or best of parties you were well, really proud I, so, of? Well, I suppose I lurched from best of party to grand band slam and then yes. back to the best of party. <laughs> yeah. Oh, one party we did have. The, so grand band slam I always liked because I got to know really literally every single band in. Western Massachusetts. And the heavy metal guys were always the easiest people to work with. <laughs> they would do anything to promo a gig. It was awesome. I always liked the heavy metal guys that won that category. They, always, they were great. So doing Grand Band Slam was always kind of chaotic and crazy. And uh, the best of was really fun. So one year we did Air Advocate. We created an entire fake airline. Oh, for the for the best of party. Okay, so that's that little jar of little fake wings that yes. I that I have seen in a back room. <laughs> I was wondering what those were for, yeah, and we now had, I know. We had we gave everybody fake aviator glasses that said Air Advocate. We had little balsa wood planes, and this is right after nine eleven. But I came, wow, I went to the company. So you know when you get on an airplane and and the 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 steward or stewardess has the the fake oxygen mask that they do the demonstration yes. with i convinced a company to sell us 50 of those and we hung them from the ceiling of the log cabin when people walked <laughs> in <laughs> but i had to be like i'm not i had to sign a form that was like i'm not a terrorist like i'm wow. using these for decorations so yeah so we had the fake yeah we had the fake airline but i think i think my favorite party that we ever threw was in downtown springfield and we threw an office space party Nice. Where as we as people came in the door, everybody we gave everybody a pair we had a pair of goggles and a baseball bat and a printer kind of cordoned off and everybody got to beat this printer to death <laughs> before they came in. And then then we had a trivia contest and we gave away red, like red staplers and all that stuff. And and the amount of trivia that people knew about that movie because it was Janet's favorite movie. Yes. So that's why we did the office space party. And actually, at Janet's going away party, we beat a fax machine to death behind Paradiso. That's amazing. <laughs> That's just like really great. Um, and then I just want to ask you a little bit about uh, about Take Magazine, which was cool. Uh, it's not it's around. Been, it's not around now. Not around anymore. Um, but just looking at different, like just interesting stories around New England, and uh, um, you know, it, it existed, and then it and then it was. Uh, we had a hiatus, yeah, and, then and then it came, came back. back. Um, you know, you know what? What was writing that kind of? Uh, what was writing that ride like? I don't think I don't still. I don't think I've still recovered. Um, it was. It was a lot. I mean, a lot of people worked really, really hard to make that work. Um, and there are a couple of things. People were like, "Oh, it's print," so it died because it's print. And it's not. You know, actually, one of the things that really punched a giant hole in our budget was digital, hmm. which is counterintuitive to that print is dead thing. But as a small independent publisher we could never deliver the amount of page views to draw big ad, draw big ad online advertisers they just weren't interested and you know i talked to a bunch of different consultants in advertising and they were like well sell to local businesses and then you kind of go to local businesses and they're like yeah we buy ads on facebook mm-hmm. so one of the things that happened over the 4 years of take that 
um, you know, you were sort of like the frog in the pot while this was happening. Like you didn't, I, none of us kind of saw it coming until it was like really upon us. But, you know, Facebook and Google take 75 to 80% of all of the online advertising, yes. digital advertising sales in the United States. It's a duopoly. Mm-hmm. So that meant that Take was competing against Daily Hampshire Gazette, the Boston Globe, the New York Times, Condé Nast for that last sliver of, you know, 20, 25% of the online advertising market. And now Amazon's moving into that to clean up that last 25%. And, mm-hmm. You know, take, I mean, I mean, uh, online advertising as a means to support editorial is no more. Hmm. Um, and that was a big part of our budget because mm-hmm. we thought, well, we can grow. We grew the audience really. We were growing 20% a month. We went from 3,000 readers to 30,000 in a year. But that's not 3 million page views. Yeah. And so digital, so like we were getting some traction with print. It takes a long time. Um, we were getting some traction with print, but it would have had to have been a hockey stick kind mm-hmm. of chart. To make up for what we lost in digital, so it was you were it was just a losing battle. But the readers liked it. Um, you know, we were making inroads with particular markets that liked it, um, and uh, so that that was that was kind of this hard thing. And so that's like one of the things I've changed with Different Leaf. There is no digital footprint for Different Leaf. If you want Different Leaf, you have to actually buy the magazine or get it at an event or whatever, yeah. you know or wherever. Um, but you know, the digital footprint that I, I want to do is podcasts. Because I think there's a space, I think there's an editorial space in, the, in what's out there for cannabis in podcasts right now. I think that's, uh, that's viable. Um, but I also think it's still, it's still a little bit of the Wild West in the podcast world. It's still a little bit more of a level playing field. I mean, I don't think we're going to come out of the gate with a Blue Apron ad, mm-hmm. a MailChimp, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know. But, you know, a young magazine can dream. Yeah. Uh, you know, but, but I think... Um, I think there's more space in that in that platform, and so that's what I'm I'm looking at. You know, maybe old issues will go up online eventually. You know, yeah. once they come off the newsstand, they can be online. That's something I'm thinking about. You know, it's me, it's me and a bunch of freelancers. This is a bootstrapped. This is a this is grandma. So the costumes we can do this in my uncle's barn, and we'll put on a show. I mean, yeah. this is very bootstrapped kind of project. So. Well, I certainly personally wish you well on this. Oh, I'm super much. tickled that you're back on the the magazine wagon and that you're coming out with something so I'm cool. Just, and yeah, I'm um, just crazy. I have to keep starting <laughs> magazines, you know. But um, this feels good. I mean, I have to say that the the industry is really responding well, which is kind, which is is it, it's nice, and I also think is will it stands a better shot at being successful as a business. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me down here. It's nice to come down to the Advocate offices. Thanks for listening. And don't forget to visit us at valleyadvocate.com.